0: This is Mornings with Carmen. If you're just tuning in, you missed a really good first hour of conversation with Nick Pitts and Luke Moon. I encourage you to grab that wherever you listen to your podcast, or you can find it at MyFaithRadio.com or on the Faith Radio app. So um, when you're driving and—well, I guess let me ask it this way. So when you get in your car or, I don't know, your truck, your tractor— And a warning light comes on. Sometimes it does happen, like, in the context of when we're driving. But I will just confess, my warning light's, like, generally on when I turn the car on. And then I press through whatever series of buttons is required to make the warning light go away (laughs) or the warning message. Sometimes the warning light stays on. Well, um, we uh, apparently have a big, bright warning light that just came on globally. And that warning light is that our power grid is on overload. So here is the Bloomberg headline, a power grid overload, historic blackouts across the world now anticipated. So in part from the story, a convergence of events may press power facilities beyond their capacity. Uh, Bloomberg says that global power grids are about to face their biggest test in decades with electricity generation strangled in the world's largest economies. War, drought, production shortages, historically low inventories, uh, and panic backlash. Energy markets across the planet um, have been put through the ringer over the past year, and consumers have suffered the consequences not only by soaring prices, um, but – blackouts, rolling blackouts in some places, and rolling blackouts expected now in the summer of 2022 in places that have uh, basically never experienced such a thing uh, during our lifetime. So industry experts are trying to sound the alarm, and um, obviously, you know, critics place the blame where they place the blame, but this isn't about blame casting. This is about preparation. So if the warning light is on and your power grid is um, on overload, then you know, maybe some, you know, some combination of preparation for being without power for a period of time um, and some conservation. And maybe, I don't know if we all turned our air conditioners up one degree um, or I don't know. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) I don't have a big plan here. I just have a warning light. Yeah, that seems to be how I roll anyway. Um, public school enro- enrollment has decreased more than 1.2 million students uh, since the beginning of the pandemic. So these numbers are just coming out, um, and it looks like you know somewhere in the neighborhood of 1.2 to 1.3 million students left public schools um, since the start of the pandemic in March of 2020. So what's that going to mean in, uh, in terms of enrollment in the fall um, of this coming year? What's it mean for homeschooling in your community? What does it mean for private schools? Uh, what does it mean for church-based schools, cooperatives, all kinds of things? This is a really good time to re-engage um, with some variety of, of education in your community, some kind of community-based education that may or may not be traditional public school. Maybe it's time for you to get engaged with a charter school in your community, um, something, maybe a public-private partnership of some kind. There's a lot out there right now on this topic, and I just encourage you in your own local community to get engaged. Um, you are needed in in the educational effort uh, in your community. Trust me when I tell you that. Uh, you are needed in the, in the educational realm um, and the revolution in education now happening in the United States of America, other people are engaged. They're pressing forward, you know, their worldview into the classrooms. Um, and so, you know, I encourage each and every listener to get engaged as well. Primaries are being held today in several states across the country in the lead up to the twenty two twenty twenty two midterm elections. Uh, let me encourage you: if uh, primaries are taking place in your state, go vote. Go vote. Your vote counts, and elections matter elections have consequences. All right. First up uh, here, we got Dr. Brett Nix from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. Yep. I'm going to ask him, what in the world is monkeypox? And do we need to be worried about it? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
2: Here we
1: come. Dr. My eyes have
2: seen the year the slow
0: parade of fears I- All right, Dr. Brett Nix is back. You can find him at CMDA, which is the Christian Medical and Dental Association, cmda.org, or at his own website, brettnixmd.com. Brett, welcome back.
2: Hey, good morning, Carmen. How are you today?
0: I am well. What is monkeypox and uh, how worried do I need to be?
2: Well, I'll tell you, if you live in Central or West Africa, you've known about monkeypox for a long time. Uh, you know, for those who don't know much about it, we all know chickenpox, okay? Now, this is not a joke between a chicken and a monkey, but the reality is monkeypox was first identified in 1958 in Central Africa. And this was a monkey outbreak, and that's where it got its name. In the early 70s, there was human transmission recognized in parts of Africa. And then since that time, we see it every so often. Uh, for example, last year in the U.S., in 2021, there were several cases identified, mostly related to travelers coming back from West or Central Africa who had exposures to different populations of, of animals, rodents that may be vectors. Now, of course, look at this year, a completely different year. And of course, the last couple of years have been completely different in so many ways. As If you watch the news, as of the last uh, few days, we've seen over 100 cases identified across Europe and Australia here in the U.S. and Canada, and the concern that we have is, hey, what's the story with this human to human contact that we're seeing? Now, recognize this. Let's take a step back. Most people know chickenpox. If you're old enough, you've probably had it. Uh, If you are older than that, you may remember until 1971 getting a shot for smallpox, uh, another type of a pox virus. But let's talk about chickenpox. We know that most people will have exposure to it. Now we have immunizations that prevent most people from getting it. But for those who had it, you remember you got it, you have these little pox lesions across your body that would eventually scab up and fall off. And most people were fine, didn't get typically sick. That's much the same with monkey pox. And what we're seeing is in general, this pox virus, uh, uh, if you were exposed to it, it's gonna be about uh, up to 14 days. So sometime over a two week period before you start to have fevers and the usual things, the chills, the myalgias. What's notable about this one is the lymph nodes in your body really get swollen. uh, And then the rash of course develops And uh, so what what do we have to be concerned about? What we're seeing right now in this human-to-human contact is anybody in close proximity to somebody who has those pox lesions, the small little bumps and then the scabs that follow, they are very, very contagious. Across Europe, there's a large percentage of these cases that are in the individuals that are men that are having sex with men. Uh, And again, close contact and concern in that area. But what we need to know is simply this. Unless unless you are someone who has an immune-compromised state, Uh, This is not something that's going to cause a high level of of fatality issues at all. Uh, What do we know to be true? It's the same as chickenpox in the sense that when you see it, it's about isolation and it's about great hygiene. uh, And recognize until those sores scab over and are completely gone, it remains highly contagious.
0: All right. And I think that uh, it's highly contagious, not only for those individuals who are engaging in um, very, very high risk sexual behaviors, um, but it, it once infected, then a person who might be exposed to a person who has these lesions, right? I might be more casually exposed to this person. It's then droplet transmitted. Is that correct? So the transmission is wider than just individuals who are engaging in very high-risk sexual behavior.
2: That's exactly right. So not all people that have monkey pox or chickenpox develop a cough, but a cough is not uncommon. And so respiratory droplets onto countertops and things like that can put an individual at risk. There is a hypothesis as well that let's say someone that does have it and you're caring for that individual doing your best job, you need to be cautious even handling uh, bed sheets and clothing and things like that uh, because of the virus that actually exists in the liquid that comes from the lesions on the body. So, you know, if you if you have somebody at home who has this, make sure that you have ample amounts of gloves available, that you're cleaning countertops, that when you're doing uh, laundry of any variety, that you're washing it in hot, that you're using gloves, washing your hands. Uh, but as you state, yes, it's not just the high-risk contact, uh, but there's respiratory droplet issues, and there's also the secondary contact that we have concern about as well.
0: Um, therapeutics, or we just treat it like we treat chickenpox, which seems to be, you know, like we treat the flu?
2: Yeah, no, it is. There's nothing magical about this. Uh, there are some that are saying, hey, if this becomes a problem and we have care individuals that are in environments uh, that may not have had the chick- the uh, smallpox vaccine, should we be vaccinating against smallpox, knowing that there's some cross-reactivity in this space? I think that uh, the the supportive literature on that is unknown at this point in time, other than what we do know to be true, which is protecting yourself, good hygiene process, and for the individual that has it, You know, obviously, if you're scratching and itching, many people have a lot of different uh, uh, things that their families have tried, everything from calamine lotion to different types of baths and whatnot. Uh, Bottom line, it's it's just supportive therapy. Uh, And if somebody should scratch these areas and start getting areas that look uh, secondarily infected uh, or they start having pulmonary problems that seem a little bit different, you know, some people can get a secondary bacterial infection. So you need to watch for that.
0: Okay. We're talking with Dr. Brett Nix. Um, we've been talking about monkeypox. Next up, we're going to be talking about false claims by the Health and Human uh, Resources Secretary assist, or Assistant Secretary um, and some comments by the Christian Medical and Dental Association um, about those false claims. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. What? Rachel Levine um, has made some statements in an NPR interview that the Christian Medical and Dental Association um, takes issue with. I'm going to refer now to a press release at (coughs) cmda.org. Dr. Brett Nix, what's going on here?
2: Well, Carmen, you know, right now we hear a lot of different things in the media related to Changes in healthcare, the navigation of healthcare. And one of the things that came out from the US Department of Health and Human Services, Assistant Secretary Rachel Levine, as, as you ascribed, was a statement that came along like this. Uh, there is no argument among medical professionals, pediatrician, pediatric endocrinologists, adolescent medicine physicians, adolescent psychologists, and psychiatrists about the value and the importance of gender affirming care. And when we listen to that and the packaging of that, the first question we ask ourselves is, is this a social imperative and what is the medical evidence that supports that statement? And, you know, the CMDA organization looks at this and says, okay, is this ethical? Is this evidence-based? And is what is being stated something that we should describe as compassionate care related to these things? And, you know, some of my colleagues, Jeff Burrows, as you stated in the article as well, uh, made this statement. He says, it is a deeply egregious and disturbing false claim attempting to coerce the public into believing that all healthcare professionals support gender-affirming care. In fact, gender-affirming care, especially for minors, is not supported by the best scientific evidence and should not be promoted by the federal government. And this is this is one of these issues where something that is stated in the news is oftentimes taken to be truth. Uh, and a question to ourselves, especially myself as a, a medical specialist is, what is the evidence that supports this? Is this something that uh, we need to be researching to a greater degree? Is it something that we understand to the degree that we believe? And if we are making a statement that all medical professionals are in agreement, then the data should be really strong. And I don't believe that it is.
0: What would be something today that we could make that kind of statement about? All medical professionals agree.
2: Fill in the blank. A, sta- a statement that would be true? Yeah. I think that you could, a simple one would be this. All medical professionals would agree that if you are over the age of 50 and have a associated risk for cardiovascular or heart disease, that taking a baby aspirin may be a very good consideration for your heart health.
0: Now, could I find somebody if I, you know, this is this is how this works, right, in the world today? If I Googled it, could I find somebody that uh, that would disagree with you? I mean, I probably uh, could. I mean, having just Googled it, right? The New York Times has a piece three days ago. Daily yeah. aspirin regimen may cause bleeding. Daily, uh, here's NPR. Daily aspirin to prevent heart attacks and strokes could do more harm than good. That's a month ago. Like, I think part of the challenge that we face, um, just is just to be like, perfectly blunt and honest with you, like, like, is there so much conflicting and confusing information out there that even things that we would say to ourselves, everybody agrees on this, come to find out not everyone, not all medical professionals agree on virtually anything. That's a huge uh-huh. challenge for those of us that are not medical people.
2: Absolutely true. I mean, the aspirin piece is a perfect example, as you stated, uh, and without going down that rabbit hole too far, the simple association piece could be this. Well, people who have take aspirin have heart attacks. Well, they're taking it to prevent them, but they're at <laughs> risk, and yes, they're having heart attacks. So now you're saying that aspirin is causing a heart attack by association. Oh, so yes, good. again, we can get into these disagreements and arguments, but the reality when we look at the research on this one is the concerns that we have is that overwhelming majority of individuals that have some gender identity, gender dysphoria, uh, transgender identified youth challenges as it relates to it, we recognize this is a multifactorial issue. And simply by saying, hey, we're going to go ahead and stop the transitions in puberty. We're going to go ahead and give different types of hormones to, to identify with this individual's perspective rather than looking at the body's physiology, the challenges that we're being faced, and recognizing that in society right now, we really struggle with a lot of different things And many times we are looking for an easier answer. Uh, I'm not saying that any of this is easy, but as you stated as well, we will have dialogue related to these types of things that are ongoing. But to ascribe that radically reconstructing one body's physiology, uh, hormonally or surgically, for a psychological challenge, uh, to state that that is medically, ethically, and psychologically appropriate, I think is very difficult for agreement.
0: All right, for those of you asking um where the link is, first of all, thank you for asking. Thank you for um communicating with me on the text line 877-933-2484. You can find the press release at cmda.org um and if you text me, I will uh I will pop it there in Uh, in the notes for you as well. Um, All right, we could talk about a range of things uh, here, Brett. We could talk about um, skin cancer. We could talk about midnight snacking. What do you want to talk about?
2: Let's talk about midnight snacks, okay? I think this is great, right? Everybody's looking for this, hey, I want to live longer, live healthier. Where is this fountain of youth? Well, for those of you who thought it was in a midnight snack, you might need to think again. We've been talking about different things that make you healthy, and how do you age healthy? Uh, And this is for anybody who could be 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, it doesn't matter your age, but how do you do things better? We've talked before about this concept of intermittent fasting, and that doesn't mean to take a whole day, to take several days to fast. We were just talking about what is that optimal duration of time between your evening meal and breakfast so that your body has a chance to recalibrate, to reset things. Well, that late night snack is not the answer. Uh, When people looked at this and started to study this, and most of this is done in animal studies and rats and things like that, We know something to be true. Our bodies were created with something called a circadian rhythm. There's times where we're ready to sleep and there's times where we're ready to be awake. And we have processes in our body that secrete different types of chemicals that make that happen. Well, our late night snack, which, you know, if it's it's me historically, my late night snack might've been chips or cookies or something along those lines. Those are carbohydrate rich substances. And what we know about that is when our body senses that, well, the natural response is, hey, I need to go ahead and secrete some insulin so I can go ahead and absorb these things. Well, doing that increases a process of inflammation in our body because no longer at night now does our body have a chance to recalibrate, to downshift our insulin secretion. That increases our risk for diabetes and our pre-diabetic levels. And really it's also going against our sleep-wake cycle because the increase of insulin level goes against this thing that we all know is melatonin, which some people take as a supplement but it's naturally secreted from our brain. And so this late night snack process, really, if you look at it on a rare occasion, is probably okay. But if this is a routine process for you, you are setting yourself up, number one, for not high quality of sleep. You're setting yourself up for items like pre-diabetes. And you're also setting yourself up for a higher level of just baseline inflammation, the inability for your body to heal properly during that night period, and to be able to recalibrate your insulin levels. So I hate to say it, late night snack, just make it an early evening snack and life will be a whole lot better.
0: It's so good. All right. As always, Dr. Brett Nix, thank you so much. You guys can find Brett online, bretnixmd.com. You can also find what we discussed today at cmda.org. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back.
1: I'm going to be joyful.
0: Somebody asks you to describe your religious affiliation, your religious practices, your religiosity. And then they ask, okay, how has that been transmitted generation to generation? Did you grow up in a family that um, practiced those similar commitments uh, in terms of the faith? And then let's look at the next generation. Um, how is that transmission going generation to generation? We're going to have the generational conversation with Dan Cox from the American Enterprise Institute. We're going to talk about what they have found out about Generation Z, and we're going to look to the future of faith in America. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. to talk with Dan Cox from the American Enterprise yeah. Institute. Uh-huh. Daniel is a senior fellow in polling and public opinion at AEI and the director of the Survey Center on American Life. You're going to find what we're discussing today at americansurveycenter.org. Dan, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Great to be here. So, um to start off this conversation about Gen Z and the future of faith in America, let's remind everybody who is Gen Z? Because it just occurred to me that like millennials are now 40. Like millennials are not teenagers anymore, even in my brain, though they might be. Gen Z is who we're now talking about. And so who is or who are Gen Z?
1: Right. So uh, Gen Z are the new millennials. Uh, They were born between 1997 and, and 2012. So the oldest members of that generational cohort are in their early to approaching mid-20s. Um so the, the bulk of that cohort is actually in their their teens. And so for most surveys, we don't get a picture of them. The surveys that we do, we only get the oldest part of that cohort, and again, they're they're in their early 20s.
0: All right. So we're talking about people who are, you know, 10 to mid-20s. And so the people in the survey that we're gonna be talking about are obviously. Um, the older half of Gen Z, um, because, you know, we don't survey 10-year-olds at this point. So talk with us about um, what you were looking for in this American Survey Center um, AEI uh, research that resulted in this conversation about Gen Z and the future of faith in America.
1: Yeah, so th- these this was a third uh, survey that we did that was uh, supported in part by the Knight Foundation, And what we were up to is we were really trying to get a sense of changes in American family life uh, in terms of the relationships between parents and children, between siblings, uh, how families spend their time. This is all changing. Uh, Just to give you an example, we found that although having regular family meals together was once a, a staple, a really important essential part of family life, it's increasingly not happening, right? So so Gen Z is far less likely to have had regular family meals together. And so that is what we were up to, just trying to get a sense of of changes that are occurring and then how it's different uh, across generations.
0: So if I told you that we sit down as a family at a dinner table that is set and a meal is served every evening without fail, and I told you that every Sunday, we get in the car together and we go and worship together at church and that we have um, other expressions of what other people might think of as religiosity. We sing together. We read the scriptures together. Um, If I told you that those things were true of my family and my uh, Gen Z kids, would you say that we are normal or increasingly abnormal in the culture today?
1: Well, I mean, there's still a a tremendous amount of people who are still doing this, right? So still engaging in traditional religious practices, still doing these things. And what's happening is that it's increasingly become sort of uh, bipolar in terms of there's people who are doing nothing at all and people who are very, very committed. And I think that's what some folks are suggesting could be a source of future conflict is that in the past, you know most of most Americans were raised in a religious faith of some sort or other have some exposure and and experience with it, but now we're we're seeing a rising number of people with just no experience with religion outside what they're hearing in popular media or in entertainment media and I think there's there's just less common ground uh less common understanding between these two different groups. And so, uh, you know, that for me, as someone who looks at and tries to understand sources of polarization, that is a little worrisome that we're seeing um, these growing groups of Americans who have little understanding and knowledge of each other.
0: So this operating out of a different set of values, that statement, which comes in the lead sentence of uh, of this report, a story of religious change in America, especially religious disaffiliation is often cast as the result of independent decisions made by a rising generation living by a different set of values but new evidence paints a much more complicated picture than the traditional narrative of generational generationally driven disaffiliation when you say the traditional narrative are you are you talking about the one that maybe i grew up believing which is people graduate from high school they go off to college and in that season, uh, they, quote, unquote, leave the church for a season. But eventually, when they want to get married or they want to find a spouse worthy of marriage and or they have kids, eventually they come back home. They come back home to the church. That's the traditional narrative of generationally driven disaffiliation. Am I correct?
1: Right. Yes. And and it really grew out of the experience of the baby boomers, right, that this generation of folks uh, grew up in the 60s and uh, you know, were responsible for pushing for a lot of social change, cultural changes, and I think that idea there that they would then, you know, leave and then come back, there was some, there's some evidence that for baby Boomers, um, but what is happening for millennials and Gen Z is that sort of same trajectory, uh, of leaving and returning is not happening. We're, I mean, we know this for millennials because, as you said at the start of the show, they're in their, you know, late 30s and 40s, some of the older ones, and, you know, are starting families, are married, and a lot of them are not engaging in religion in the same way that their parents did.
0: Okay, so there's a shift that has taken place in terms of um, the the term you use is disaffiliation. I do think that increasingly the term that we are hearing is deconversion, um, but people are leaving the faith uh of their parents, or at least the faith claimed by their parents, Um, the box checked in terms of, are you, uh, you know, are you a person of faith? And if so, which kind of faith? Um, They're no longer checking that box and they're, they're no longer coming back to that expression of the faith. Is that what you found?
1: Yeah. Yes. So, um, and, and again, a lot of this, if you just look at the different pieces, it, it makes sense, right? So, if you are not raised in a, a religious tradition, if your parents are not all that religious, um, they don't provide a sort of structure uh, and you know exposure to religious ideas and you know bringing people into young you know young people into a religious community. That doesn't happen just organically on its own, right? That's you know, that's sort of part of the process. And for you to leave and come back, you have to have something to come back to. And so I think that's sort of been the missing piece is that we haven't realized that how how differently the formative experiences have been with this younger generation. And it's not just that, uh, oh, they, you know, they're spending more time on social media, that maybe their friends are not as religious. It's that, you know, whether it's religious attendance, whether it's participation in religious education programs like Sunday school whether it's stuff around, you know, at home, saying grace or praying uh, together as a family, those things are just not uh, as common experiences for Gen Z as they were for um, Gen X and baby boomers.
0: Yeah, the saying grace one really stood out to me as um, as interesting. Can you say a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, so, I, you know, w- one of the things that we look at a lot is the difference between sort of like personal religious practices and belief and institutional. And the U.S. overall is experiencing a dramatic decline in institutional trust and involvement. So, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, trust in in police, the federal government, media, higher ed, you know, we're seeing some really consistent declines in trust among the public. And the same is true for religion, uh, both in terms of trust and membership. Gallup, for the first time, which has been tracking this for, I think, 40 or 50 years at least, found that for the first time in the last couple of years that less than half Americans said they are a member of a religious institution. So there's there's that piece, right, that you know being part officially, formally, of a religious institution. And then there's the things that you sort of personally believe, you know, personally practice, what you do on your own with your family, perhaps. And those are separate. Um, uh, those, are, those are separate in terms of how people are, are, you know, experiencing in doing them. And so I think like that is really an important distinguishing feature of this generation is that they are much less uh, part of religious communities, but they still, a lot of them still believe in God.
0: hmm all right, I'm going to read you um a paragraph from um this AEI report which you can find at americansurveycenter.org, Gen Z and the future of faith in America, um uh, because it occurs to me, Dan, that as folks are listening right now, maybe they're wondering what what interest does AEI, the American Enterprise Institute, have in all of this? Um there's a there's something going on here in terms of religious Americans um that also has, like, effects in what I might call, like, the flourishing life indicators. So I want to read a couple of paragraphs here from um, from your report. These changes have considerable personal and societal consequences. Individually, Americans who report leaving their formative religion report more significant personal hardship than those who were raised and remain religious. This is particularly true for Americans who disaffiliate from more conservative religious traditions. And then it goes on to talk about the numbers there. A decline of religion has implications for American civic and social life as well. Religious Americans are generally more socially and civically active. Um, And then the uh, the walk-off sentence of the the paragraph that follows that, there is evidence that education level and religious involvement both augment participation in community life. College-educated Americans who are religious tend to exhibit the highest levels of civic engagement. It it occurs to me Dan that the um the interest here is not only in you know hey we we who are Christians want the next generation to be Christians and we're concerned that we're not doing a very good job transmitting the gospel generation to generation but this has community and civic and social implications as well. Can we talk a little bit about those when we come back? Absolutely. Fantastic. We're talking with Daniel Cox from the American Enterprise Institute. We're talking about Gen Z and the future of faith in America. You can find the full report at americansurveycenter.org. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Continuing our conversation with Daniel Cox, you can find him at AEI.org. Um, you can find what we're talking about today at americansurveycenter.org. We're talking about Gen Z and the future of faith in America. Um, not only are the findings really interesting in terms of the implications for the church and our concern for the transmission of the gospel generation to generation, but it's a really interesting conversation to have um, in terms of who we are in the United States of America as Americans and our and our civic and cultural life. So, Daniel, talk, talk with us about the relationship between religion or religious rhythms or religiosity and an American life.
1: Yeah, so one of the things that we know through, there's a voluminous body of research uh, that has been conducted over many, many years that has found that regular participation in religion, belief is not as important, right? So, there, you know, there's a lot of diversity of religious belief in the U.S., Um, That is less important for what we're talking about than actually being part of religious community, regular participation in religious activities um, with a sort of, uh, you know, within a community context. That is really important for connecting you to a lot of different uh, civic, social, and political uh, activities as well. So people who are regularly engaged in religious practice um, tend to have uh, more robust social networks. They have... Uh, larger groups of of friends and um, family members, Uh, they have, uh, they're more active in their community uh, in terms of volunteering, uh, and they tend to be more politically engaged as well. And and so there's a lot of kind of pro-social capital that is built through participation in religion. And one of the things that, you know, I and, and others are really looking at is what happens you know, when people um, do disaffiliate, you know, in large numbers, what happens to uh, all these other kind of downstream activities, you know, and, and we're seeing, I think, some of that uh, in terms of um, you look at the friendship uh, among men, the number of close friendships that men have over the last 20 years has, has declined pretty precipitously. Um, you see, you know, it in terms of you know, membership in other types of uh, civic organizations, you know, um, Bowling Alone catalog, this really dramatic decline in sort of the associational life of, of America. And I think partly uh, this decline in religion is, is related to that. And so I think like we, we can't look at any of these things uh, in isolation. We need to understand how it's all connected.
0: So um, are they coming back? That's going to be one question that people listening right now who, let's say they're in congregations where, you know, every head is gray and there are fewer and fewer people in the pews all the time. And they think to themselves or they imagine, oh, it's okay, because once our kids grow up and get married, um, they'll come back to church and they'll bring their kids with them. Um, That's actually not what the evidence, that's not what the, that's not what your evidence shows. Can you talk a little bit about whether or not Americans who have disaffiliated uh, will ever return?
1: Yeah, and this is something that you know we've looked a lot at too. The the group that is religiously unaffiliated, which is about you know depending on the survey you're looking at, about one in four to maybe three in ten uh, Americans are religiously unaffiliated. That means they have they do not claim an um, identity with any sort of the major faith traditions, and they say they are nothing or an atheist or agnostic. Uh, that group. Uh, looks really different in terms of how they think about religion, um, their engagement in religion, not surprisingly. Uh, you know, they, they tend to have either more doubts or not believe in God at all. They tend to um, not pray regularly. They tend not to be engaged in, in regular religious practice uh, or religious attendance. Um, but the really interesting thing is what's happening in terms of their social circles. We're seeing increasingly that people who are not religious are developing close relationships with other people who are not religious, um, and increasingly marrying people who are not religious as well. So we're seeing the, this increase in secular couples and secular families, uh, in which everyone uh, is is not religious in terms of they don't practice uh, or identify. And that's one of the reasons that, you know, people aren't coming back, right? So if you are not religious, but you are married to someone who is, who cares a lot about raising children in a, in a religious community, that's probably going to happen. If one person is kind of, you know, feel, forgive the expression, kind of agnostic about it, and one person cares a lot about it, that's, you know, probably going to happen. But if both people are, are kind of apathetic and don't care, then it's not going to happen. Uh, and we're, we're seeing that increasingly among people who are secular and have, um, are raising children, they're, they're just not raising them in any faith tradition at all. And that doesn't mean that they are teaching their kids to hate religion or not trust religious people. Uh, It just means that they're not prioritizing it. And what we see particularly with uh, middle and upper middle class families is they're filling the gaps there with kind of all these other different activities, you know, art classes, sports leagues, uh, music, all these kind of enrichment uh, activities, uh, partly because concerns about, uh, you know, getting into college and getting a good job. Um, but a lot of the energy is put there as opposed to uh, developing kind of a, a community of religious peers for them.
0: Yeah, or conscientiously investing them with a biblical worldview. Yeah, absolutely. Super interesting. Daniel, as always, thank you so much. It's it's like an intellectual feast um, when you join us. So thank you for what you're doing at AEI. Thank you for this Gen Z and the Future of Faith in America report. You guys can find it at American surveycenter.org. You can find what Daniel's working on right now at AEI.org. Daniel, as always, thank you so much. My pleasure. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. All right, it is graduation season, so let's be praying ardently for those graduating from every level of their educational experience, and let's also um, be mindful that we never graduate as disciples of Jesus Christ from the learning experience with Him. I want to give a graduation shout-out here to Valedictorian Elizabeth Bonker. Um, Elizabeth is the Valedictorian at Rollins College in Florida, And Elizabeth uh, has a non speaking form of autism. She delivered an inspiring message recently to her fellow graduates, and she used a text to speech computer program to share her address. Um, And she called her fellow classmates to live a life of service. Let's listen to a portion of Elizabeth Bonker's speech at Rollins College, class of 2022. Rollins College, class of 2022. Today we celebrate our shared achievements. I know something about shared achievements because I am affected by a form of autism that doesn't allow me to speak. My neuromotor issues also prevent me from tying my shoes or buttoning a shirt without assistance. I have typed this speech with one finger with a communication partner holding a keyboard. I am one of the lucky few non-speaking autistics who have been taught to type. That one critical intervention unlocked my mind from its silent cage enabling me to communicate and to be educated, like my hero Helen Keller. That uh, is a portion of the speech by valedictorian Elizabeth Bonker, delivered at Rollins College on May the 8th. She went on to say, We are called to serve as an everyday act of humility, as a habit of mind, to see the worth in every person we serve, to strive to follow the example of those Who chose to share their last crust of bread? For to whom much is given, much is expected. God gave you a voice; use it. In her speech, she emphasized that her dream is to help those who cannot speak to gain a voice. Now, remember, she has a a form of autism um, that has rendered her non-speaking, and yet she has found her voice. She says, uh, just like Martin Luther King Jr., I have a dream. My dream is communication for all. There are 31 million non-speakers with autism in the world locked in a silent cage. My life will be dedicated to relieving them from suffering in silence and giving them voices to choose their own way. I want you to consider for a moment... Um, 31 million people, bright, intelligent, people who have a lot to say, but they're locked in the silent cage of nonverbal autism. Elizabeth Bonker majored in social innovation. She has a minor in English. She's an author, an activist, a lyricist, and the founder of a nonprofit called Communication, the number four, and the word all. You can watch her full speech on YouTube. Hey, no excuses today, people. No excuses. Find your voice, speak the truth in love, and go be shiny. Let your light so shine before others that they will see your good works and they will glorify God who is in heaven. Live a life of service. No excuses today, people. Find your voice and speak the truth. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio.